Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com or have left in the comment section of my Q&A videos. So if you want to uh, drop some questions there, you guys can go ahead and do so. And also, of course, my Patreon supporters have their questions uh, put at the top of the queue. And a lot of the questions this week actually do come from my Patreon supporters. So thank you very much to all of you who are supporting this channel. I really, really, really appreciate it. And I want to thank each and every one of you. Uh, the least I can do is take your questions and put them at the top of my queue. All right. I hope you guys will check out the podcast I did this week. We had a nice two-hour chat, me and Jen Kiaba. Uh, uh, <laughs> sorry, Jen Kiaba. Uh, she is a fellow student on the uh, Psychology of Course of Control program. She's a year behind me. She's She's doing the program now. We talk about that. We talk about what we've been learning. We're both ex-cult members, and so we talk about what the learning has been doing to us. And, and we had a lot of fun with that conversation, and I hope you guys will check it out because I think we covered a lot of very important territory when it comes to cults and communication and education, excuse me, and um, being second-generation cult members and what that means. And, and also we got into academia and scholarship and, and, and research and stuff like that, too. So anyway, certainly interesting stuff to me, and I hope it's interesting stuff to you, too. Uh, all right. And then, of course, this uh, on Friday, I hope you guys will check out the Critical Conversation show that we did. Um, we do them live on Fridays at 6 o'clock uh, Mountain Time. And uh, for those of you who can't join us, you can always check it out on the uh, replay. You can always just go watch it. And uh, this week we talked about latest uh, developments this last week in Scientology. If you want to hear my commentary about the court movement on Danny Masterson's case, that's in there. And also um, we talked about police interrogations, which was a point that came up in my research for my paper that I'm writing. And so we got to go on about that a little bit. So that was kind of fun. All right. So let's get on with your questions. Nick C., a few weeks ago, I asked you a question about a fringe QAnon group that had congregated in Dallas in early November to await the revelation, or is it resurrection, of JFK Jr. Several target dates prophesied, quote-unquote, by the group leader, Michael Brian Protzman, a.k.a. Negative 48, came and went with no JFK in sight, Jr. or otherwise. The group, however, reportedly maintains cohesion, which is not unusual for high indoctrination groups. They often persist past multiple prophetic failures. Some members joined the group together with their spouses and minor children. Others left their families to join. If that was all, we'd have another regrettable waste of time. In late December, however, there were press reports about members discussing suicide as a way to some nebulous next stage as well as about members ingesting toxic chemicals. This has some truly troubling points of similarity with Heaven's Gate. Do you think we may be heading for a loss-of-life situation? More broadly, do we have any conceivable ways of diffusing this type of situation rather than just letting it devolve? What would be the best response by civil authorities, law enforcement, and the mental health profession? I'd ask how likely we are to see such a response, but I think you and I are equally pessimistic about this. Okay, Nick, thank you very much for asking me this question. This is a tough situation and a tough question. There's a lot of layers to this, uh, all, all, all of which I am not 
educated on or in a position to speak intelligently on. So I'm only going to speak unintelligently about some of this. And that is having to do with uh, matters of the law. I'm not fully you know, familiar with all of the legal uh, potentialities in this. Um, I looked up a couple things in terms of some ideas I had, but um, you know, it, where were where you are trying to preemptively stop a crime from happening in a more broad sense than just with cults and cult leaders? Uh, you are dealing with pre-crime, right? As we, as Minority Report, right? <laughs> uh, you, you know, this is this is a this is a trouble. Uh, troublesome area. This is this is a minefield, right? There are there are issues at stake here because how do you know when when a crime is going to be committed? Well, somebody can tell you they're going to commit a crime, but does that mean they're they really are going to? Are they joking? Are they being satirical? Are they um, are they being ironic? You know, or are they being serious? And you know, a case could be made for um, all of the above in lots of different circumstances by lots of different people depending on their motivations and their agenda and the law, you know, and, and so, and then you, then you're also looking at um, surveillance, which is something that has been kind of front and center in my mind lately because of the, because of my paper in Scientology and research on this, you know, surveillance is a, is a, is a big topic and how, you know, cause in order to be able to watch over, let's take this group in Texas, let's just go super specific on them. So here you have a small group of people, relatively speaking. I mean, it could be a couple hundred people. It's still a relatively small group of people, uh, all things considered. Heaven's Gate was also pretty small. And um, you need to now exert, uh, because of a report in the media about a potential loss of life situation or threat of loss of life, you now have to exert, um, you know, law enforcement resources, social service resources, government resources, in order to monitor, investigate, uh, look into, right? Are these credible threats or or is this just bluster? Is somebody just, just saying something or is there an actual um, potential of loss of life here? It's a little hard to tell because here you have people who are so disconnected from reality when they're talking about how JFK Jr. is coming back or how he has come back and how Trump himself, I looked these guys up and five days ago, this um, Michael Brian Protzman guy was uh, quoted as talking about how at a, at a Trump rally, that was actually a body double and it wasn't Trump. It was, uh, I guess he was saying it was Robert Kennedy Jr. Uh, and so, so you're dealing with people who are so disconnected from reality that it's hard to take their threats seriously because their facts and their worldview are so off that you're like, well, what part of that, what comes out of their mouth can I believe or not believe? Well, a credible threat to, you know, of loss of life should be something that we take seriously. And in hindsight, of course, everybody's always, oh my God, how could you have not? Well, it, it, you know, when people say stuff they, like that, they usually are, are saying so out of a gross ignorance of just how many threats there are out there. People stay threatening things all the time. It doesn't mean they're going to follow through on them. Um, so how do you know when they're going to and when they're not? You know, these are these are very, very troublesome things. So you need to investigate. You need to invest resources. And it's not just law enforcement resources. It's also ideally social services and mental health professionals, as you mentioned in your question. You know, it'd be great if you could send 
um, you know, a psychologist or a um, extremist specialist or something like that out to situations like this uh, to look into these groups or look into these situations. But then you have to ask yourself in the United States of America with the rights and freedoms that we have, just how much of a right do you have to go investigate somebody based on words they said? How credible can you take that threat? And from a law enforcement or, or intervention point of view, when you're dealing with a high-control group or potentially a high-control group, what's perceived as a culty kind of activity like this Q group down in Texas, when you're dealing with a group like that, they are very inward, you know, they're, they're, they, they circle the wagons. They're very defensive. They are, they are very much into protecting who their identity and their leadership and that whole thing. So if you're going in there to try to find evidence of a conspiracy, let's say, let's say you want to, let's say you go on this from a conspiracy angle, because they haven't committed a crime, but they're conspiring to commit a crime, you believe based on a media report or based on tweets or based on Facebook posts or something, you go, hey, wait a minute, something's going on here. Maybe there's a crime being planned, murder, <laughs> right? Or, you know, mass suicide or whatever, however you want to phrase that. So is there a conspiracy? Is this guy working with other people? Like, how are they planning on doing this? How would they go about this? Have they talked about it? Is there planning? If there is, now you've got a potential for prosecution for conspiracy, but somebody's going to have to give up the, the, the goods. And in a cultic high control situation, that is 10 times harder than in a non-culty situation because nobody's going to talk to you. You're an outsider. You're, you know, you're the bad guy. With the in-group, out-group thing, all the people in the group are not going to rat out their leader or other members, even on something as serious as this, if they're true believers. So how do you find evidence of a conspiracy if nobody's willing to talk about the conspiracy? This is a very, very challenging thing. And you cannot just walk in there and say, well, I know better. You don't have that right. Not in the United States, you don't. Um, and I don't think you should. But it makes it very, you know, a bit of a problem to try to then figure out how you can do an intervention. And this is where the more much, 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 much more subtle intervention tactics and investigation would be called for. Ideally, of course, with a group like this, what law enforcement can and should be doing is infiltrating it. The FBI has been doing this for decades, sometimes rightly, sometimes wrongly, sometimes to good results, sometimes to bad result. So let's, you know, so, um, so there's no, you know, oh, that's always a good thing or always a bad thing. It's always context specific. And in this particular case with this group down in Texas, um, you know, they should be looked into. Now, I don't think the FBI has jurisdiction here. They are a local activity in Dallas. There's no federal crimes that I'm aware of going on there. It would be a local matter. I looked into the laws down in Texas a little tiny bit, and they don't have coercive control laws down there. Um, and if they and, and coercive control laws are all about domestic violence and, and controlling that anyway. So there's really no anti-cult law that you can use. You can't, you can't keep people from collecting together, from, from banding together and making a group, right? It's actually in our Bill of Rights that they, 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 they get to do that. So, um, so anyway, you'd have to, you know, go in and find some evidence of this conspiracy. And that's where, um, that's probably the most likely way to do it would be to infiltrate. Does Dallas police have the ability to do that, the resources to do that, the will to do that, and the know-how to do that? I don't know.
I don't know anything about Dallas's law enforcement situation down there. Do uh, does Dallas's social services or mental health professionals know anything about this or know enough about this to to go in and ask questions, do assessments, check things out? Can you compel people to be interviewed by uh, government employees or social services? You know, you could you send child protective services in there? And see if that might be an angle of approach. If there are children involved, could the children be interviewed? Could you ask them what sort of things they've seen and heard? Very, very difficult. Because, again, you have to have probable cause. You have to be able to show that to a judge or uh, somehow or another be able to enforce your will to go in and investigate that. And then when you're talking to kids, you got to make sure you're not asking any leading questions. Big, huge problem with kids. Uh, actually, with anybody, right? But especially with kids. So, uh, so you can see just in what I'm talking about here, the layers of difficulty connected with looking into this. People think it's, oh, I'll just send some cops down there and bust them. And I, like it's like, no, it doesn't work that way, right? People have rights and they have freedom and they have the freedom to think what they want. And you don't get to tell them that they don't get to think that way. But if they're committing a crime... That's when we get to intervene. But proving that crime, like I said, is difficult. Um, now, in terms of diffusing a situation like that or something, yeah, there are other methods or ways of intervening, which are not, in, you know, like enforcement, like going in there and knocking on doors and pounding down things and telling people what they're going to do. You'd have to somehow, um, I don't know exactly how you would do this. You'd have to actually drop some kind of a plan. But if I were like, a mental health specialist or social services professional in Dallas, let's say, and I was tasked with, okay, you know, look into this group, see what's going on. Is this a credible threat or not, right? Yeah, I, I would not be able to do that without talking to those people or observing them closely, you know, in some fashion. So, um, so some kind of an investigation would need to be launched. And preferably be, be the sort of... Um, you know, sort of non-antagonistic, non-hostile kind of investigation or intervention, right? Where you might um, use, maybe you might investigate using family or friends of the people who are there. Like you'd have to get their names somehow. You'd have to find out who these people are. Contact, you know, what? okay, what, what do we know about this? What, how, what are they communicating to you guys about this? Uh, like to, your, to their family and friends, are they talking? Is there any kind of end times, uh, you know, mission over, we're not sure we're going to make it out of this, any kind of communications like that. Um, you know, you'd, in other words, it would take, you know, a lot of work to, uh, to look into all that and figure that out. And that's just for this one small group making these potentially credible threats of suicide, mass suicide, right? How many groups are out there with uh, indications of criminal or potentially criminal activity? How many resources do we have? What's the chances of, you know, those resources being utilized in a constructive way to put to a positive result? You know, again, question, question, question here. There's just so many layers. And this is what, of course, you know, thinking about all this stuff and 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 knowing all this is is one of the reasons why I am pessimistic about interventions at this kind of level. Um, you know, before the fact of a disaster or a Heaven's Gate situation, it's it's just not as easy as it sounds. And, you know, well, why doesn't somebody do something? Well, that, you know, anybody can say that. Go do it and then find out, yeah, it's a way harder problem than you imagine it is. 
So I don't mean to put all that out there in some doom and gloom fashion. Something should be done. But it's, like I said, trying to figure that out is hard. Now, all of this is just kind of within the best of my limited, and I do mean very limited knowledge, about how governments and institutions and social services and law enforcement work. I'm not intimately connected with any of these activities. I've I've only seen them and studied them from afar, so I can only comment on them to that degree. And it's entirely possible in all of this pessimism and 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 voiced, you know, frustration that you hear from me here, um, that I am completely missing the boat, that there are key things I do not know anything about that might be uh, very viable avenues of approach or or how to deal with this. But you asked, that's my best answer. It's not a great one. I, I admit that. And um, but that's all I've got for you. And I didn't want to just ignore it because it's an important question and it deserves a a good answer. I wish I had a better one for you. Steve Wood. I was listening to Leah and Mike's show yesterday, and they told a story of when Tom Cruise was in the gold base, somebody addressed him as Tom instead of Sir, and he was immediately demoted, sent to do hard manual labor, and eventually sent to the RPF. Then I realized you too were also sent to the RPF. Did you think the entire time you were there that this was good for you and you deserve this awful situation as it would make you a better Scientologist? If being sent to the RPF doesn't give you a second thoughts about your decisions in joining Scientology, I don't know what would. Hey, Steve, thanks for this question. Yeah, of course I had doubts and problems when I was on the RPF about my Scientology uh, involvement, participation, membership, etc., uh, you, can, you can't hit the RPF. You have hit bottom when you hit the RPF, uh, absolute bottom. Like there is no lower place to go. Um, and, and generally speaking, people who hit the RPF have hit the lowest part of their entire life, or that's how they think about it. So, um, so you, don't, you don't hit that and then not reflect on what got you there and your circumstances and whether these are the best circumstances for you. Um, let me elaborate a little bit on my own personal experience with this. You know, you mentioned this thing about Tom Cruise and he was supposed to be called sir and this kind of thing. And that's just miscavige Cruise, you know, uh, conceit and arrogance. And, and that's why I say Tom Cruise is just a big dick, right? It's because this is the kind of thing he's absolutely 100% in support of. Tom Cruise would have no problem at all with somebody being sent to the RPF for disrespecting him. That's Tom Cruise's ego. So he's he's a he's him and Miscavige are, are are peas in a pod. So um so don't don't walk away from this thinking that this is like oh well Tom didn't know Tom knew. Now as far as um as far as going back to the RPF thing though let me um let me describe this in a little bit more detail for you. When I hit the RPF I was like everybody else who hits it at rock bottom and for the first month that I was there, I was about as much of a mess as I have ever been. I mean, it's probably, yeah, I'll just say worse, worse situation, worse condition, worse mental state. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of bouncing. Well, it, it felt very much like the, like the best, the, the best uh, metaphor I can give you for what was going on in my mind for that first month that I was on the RPF was like a hard rubber ball bouncing off the, you know, the walls of my mind, uh, you know, it was faster and faster trying to keep up with that thing. And it was, and every time it hit a wall, it hurt, you know, it was like, ah, 
I mean, I just, I, it's a weird, I know that sounds weird, but it was just, it was, it was a weird place to be. It's hard to remember exactly the crazy of it. I remember some of the thoughts and feelings about it and the deep, deep, deep emotional wells of regret and shame and um, just feeling like I was just the worst human being who had ever lived. But also then bouncing between that and what the hell am I doing here? This isn't, I don't deserve this. This isn't right. But then I do deserve it. I mean, there's this, there, there were big double binds there in terms of I do deserve it. I don't deserve it. I, this is what I need. This isn't what I need. I mean, it, and it was really kind of crazy making. Um, I was bouncing mostly around the idea of a plan B. What if this doesn't work out? What if I can't make this? This is the hardest thing I've ever had to deal with, running around, the physical labor, the getting yelled at from day one of arriving to the RPF, people screaming at you, move faster, run harder, run faster. Ah! You know, it's all about kind of hazing you into the process, actually. There was this one guy who was took it upon himself to, to, to do that. And, uh, and he was, he was uh, really giving me quite a hard time at the beginning making you work harder, carry more, do more than you ever imagine you, you know, are, are physically comfortable doing. I mean, I was way, way, way out of my comfort zone. There was no comfort zone allowed. If there is, if there is a mantra or a motto for the RPF, it's uh, that there is no comfort zone here. <laughs> it was bad. So this plan B that was kind of bouncing around in my head was maybe I could leave the Sea Org go establish some kind of life for myself where I could, you know, get a job, make some money or something. I didn't, I was trying to like, what could I be? What could I do? You know, for some reason I was hung up on maybe being a private investigator or something. It was weird. I don't know where that was coming from, but it was a very strong idea that I had at the time that I could use my Scientology skills to, you know, as a manager and evaluator and an analyst or something to go do private investigator work or something and to make, and make money that way. Uh, and I thought, you know, that I would only have my parents, my, I wouldn't have any more friends. All the friends I had in the entire world were Scientologists. So, and Sea Org members, right? At, at, by this point, I'd been in the Sea Org for eight, nine years at this point. So, um, so I didn't have any other connections outside of the Sea Org. So the idea of being cast adrift. In the big wide world that I have not been in in over in like ten years, eight eight not eight to ten years somewhere in there by this point, I I'd, I'd been in the Sea Org, so I'm I'm out of the real world. I've got no friends in the real world, and I've got parents who I think of as disaffected Scientologists. So there's still something wrong with them. They're they're not they're not persona non grata. I love my parents, but. I, you know, they're not hardcore Scientologists like I am. So how, so am I going to leave this group of people, all these connections, all these relationships, including, by the way, my wife, who I loved and I was married to, like, and I, I was doing this program for her more than anybody else because of, you know, because of how I'd gotten there. And so all of this is going through my head. And, and this plan B, this, well, I could still leave, I could still get out of here, I could, I could change this up, did not look very appealing. That plan B did not appeal to me. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, I get out of here and then I can go, what? Do what? I mean, there's no certainty there. There's no job there. There's no place to live there. There's no car there. There's nothing 
it's a dive into the great wide blackness of of I don't know what's going to happen to me. So at least, I mean, if you you know if that's clear, at least with the Sea Org and the RPF, I've got a program of steps that I need to get through, and once I get through them, I get my life back. I get to get back into the Sea Org. I get to get my wife. I get to get back on post. I get all my friends back. All I got to do is get through this program. I know exactly what I need to do. I just need to do it. And then everything gets back to normal. Normal for me as a Sea Org member, right? Because again, I was already in the Sea Org for eight to 10 years. It was my normal. I say eight to 10. I can't remember uh, exactly. I mean, I think it was, let's just say nine. So, um, so there I am, right, with the, you know, the devil and the deep blue sea. Which, what am I going to do? Well, I stuck with it because it was the more sure, certain, positive thing to do. And it was the, and mostly because it was the most known set of circumstances for me. You know, diving off that diving board into the great white, you know, great blackness of, of, of uncertainty. Um, I, I, I could be dead in a month. You know, I, I mean, what if my parents reject me? What if, what if, what if, what if? Like, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen, right? It's not like I could pick up the phone and call my mom when I was on the RPF. I couldn't call anybody. I didn't have any access to any resources, you know? So, uh, so what was I going to do, you know? So that's, so that's kind of the situation I was in. And I was not alone in that. I, other RPFers certainly experienced similar things. I've talked to people you know, since that, that time. And, and I wasn't the only one having that kind of a hard time, you know, but it's like, it, you, you talk about, we talk about these, you know, cognitive dissonance and motivated reasoning. And I throw these words around and, and this is what it actually translates to in the real experience of life is, you know, and that's where my, that's where my head was at that whole time. So, uh, so did I think that it was gonna, that I deserved it and this awful situation was going to make me a better Scientologist? Yeah, I did. I really did because I subscribed to a moral code that said what I did was wrong. And I agreed with that at the time I thought, you know, I was brainwashed into agreeing with that. There was a whole lot of work done in order to get me to agree to that, but I did agree to it. I mean, that's, that's where my head was at. I look back now and I think to myself that, you know, it was a bit nuts that I ever agreed to any part of that, but I can see that it wasn't, you know, it was, there was a long road of agreements that lead you to that place. So you don't just appear one day on the RPF. Okay, so, um, and then I did think that it was going to make me a better Scientologist. I did. I thought, I have evil purposes. This auditing will deal with my evil purposes. Those evil purposes have been the thing that have gotten me here. I, and in fact, in fact, there is one last thing on this, and I think I've talked about this before, but I'll say it out loud here again. I was so far down the line, I was so beaten, I was so dejected, I was so down on myself that that I I didn't see any other way out. And I and I and the thing that started the thing that hit me, here's what happened to me that 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 turned that around. And this might not make a lot of sense to to everybody, but I'm just going to tell you anyway, is is I realized 
at that time, I realized, I came to a thought I, I, that, that the road that had led me to the RPF, led me to this sad sack state of affairs, was all my own doing. Because remember, in Scientology, you are responsible for your own condition. So I own that. I wanted to be a good Scientologist. I wanted to be a good person. And I defined myself as, as those two are, good, are the same thing. A good person is a good Scientologist. So in order to be a good Scientologist, I had to be on the road to freedom, the road to truth, the, you know, discover the answers, get myself out of this mess, following the path that L. Ron Hubbard gave us. So from that point of view, I thought to myself that I had arrived to the RPF and I had landed there because I had been dramatizing this evil purpose that I had deep inside of me to kill myself, to, to do away with myself, to, to get rid of me. And that made sense to me at that time in that moment. I was like, oh, I've been doing this all to myself and I've got to get myself out of this. And that wasn't true. Objectively speaking, that was not a true statement. I was not the only person who put myself in that position. I did not do all of that to myself, and I was not fully responsible for my own condition. There were a lot of other people who helped me arrive at that place and, and did things to me, abused me, hurt me, you know, uh, in order for me to, to get there. But at that time, in that place, that's how I saw the world. And that was the thing that kind of turned it around for me was, oh, I got to get myself out of this. And that was true enough. I did need to get myself out of that. And it took way longer than it should have. If I'd really had my head on straight at that moment, I would have walked away. I would have just gotten the hell out of the whole situation. But I, I didn't have my head on straight. I had all these things I've been describing to you as all these other things I was thinking about and thinking with you know, Scientology being front and center. And so, you know, so you ask, did I really think I deserved it? And did I really think it was going to make me a better person? Yeah, I really did. And I could not have been more wrong. But that's what I thought. So that's what, you know, that's what cult indoctrination and brainwashing and all that, that's what it does to you is it screws with your head and it makes you think that, you know, black is white, red is blue, up is down, and freedom is slavery. So I, I hope that communicates. I, I'm trying to give you the, the most inner thoughts of that time and place so that I can get that across. Um, and I hope it's working. So there you go, Steve. AC, did anyone around you ever keep a pet in the Sea Org, even if it was smuggled in? I'm assuming they are against policy, but if the base captain wanted to have one, would it be allowed? We could not have pets while we were in the Sea Org, except I knew a couple people who had some fish in a bowl, and I knew somebody who had a bird, uh, older gal who had a bird. She'd been in the Sea Org for a long, long time, and um, and they let her have it. You know, it was a little parakeet or something. It wasn't that it wasn't that noisy, so it didn't bother other Sea Org members. And she was in a room. Um, I think it was a married couple. They weren't in a dorm. No, I never, ever, ever, ever saw an animal allowed in a dorm. Only in the couples' spaces, right, where you have a married couple who get their own room. Um, and the only exception to that, by the way, that I was aware of was David Miscavige, of course, who's got a beagle. Uh, he had a little dog. 
and uh people talked about his dog and you know and that kind of thing and there was, was some i remember there was uh something about uh, the dog being in a uniform one day and everybody thought that was really cute oh so cute david miscavige's dog uh but otherwise pets now pets were not a thing and as as far as i know hubbard didn't ever keep pets i'm not i'm not sure but i don't remember uh pets i don't remember dogs them keeping dogs or cats hubbard talked about having a cat back in uh 49 when he was writing dianetics but otherwise animals were not big on hubbard's list of things to have or do and i don't really as i sit here thinking about it right now i, I don't really remember much in the way of a discussion about animals or pets other than that they have a lower order of mind uh what hubbard called the somatic mind in dianetics and um and that there could be thetans connected with animals, um, but it was, uh, if so, you were kind of in a little bit of a degraded state as a thetan if you were being a dog or a cat or a, uh, an ant or something. I mean, theoretically, this was possible, I guess, but uh, Hubbard, Hubbard didn't really get into it too much. So animals were not really much of a thing. And, and also, of course, trying to have a pet on a Sea Org base is, um, well... You know, it'd be a very silly thing to do. You wouldn't have the money to keep it up. I mean, it, it, with the shots and the insurance and the or or uh, medical visits and the food and all the other stuff you'd have to do, uh, you know, you wouldn't be able to really keep that. Gurror, if you were able to interview Juliette Lewis or Laura Preppen, what questions would you ask them? What do you think their responses would be? I would have a lot of questions about, I mean, I'm not going to list out a series of questions here, but I'll tell you what I would ask about is I would ask about their uh, exit. What what was it that, you know, was the road out for them or how did they sort of twig? What was their Scientology experience in the first place? I'd be a little interested in that. I mean, Juliet was a second gen member. Laura was not. How did they get involved? That kind of thing. What appealed to them about it? What was their experience with it? What helped them the most with it? Why did they stick with it? But more, much, much, much more interested than their personal story I'd find fascinating. But more importantly for me, I would be very, very interested in their celebrity handlers, how that all worked. What, you know, how were they, how did they deal with um, contradictions or uh, hypocrisies? I have all kinds of questions for Laura about uh, what it says in Science of Survival and the cognitive dissonance that she had to experience and how she resolved that to be able to play a lesbian in Orange is the New Black. And um, and and that aside, even if she, that's just an acting role and it doesn't have to conflict with her beliefs, how does she then put out a statement that there is no conflict and that the church is LGBT friendly? I, I you know that, How does she get away with saying crap like that? I'd want to know all about that. And... Um, you know, Juliet, I'd love, I, I'd ask her probably about her dad, I, Jeffrey Lewis. He was an actor I really liked. Uh, so I might ask her about him. I have no idea what their responses would be. Um, and of course, I'd like to know, you know, um, about the whole OSA and celebrity and the president's office and how that whole thing works, um, you know, and how much of a bubble did they feel they were in? I mean, as celebrities, they're always going to be in a little bit of a bubble regardless but as scientology celebrities how did that all work so that might be um uh, there'd be hours of conversation there i am sure xenu in critical q a number 342 you talk about the original and the revised versions of ot8 
My question is whether you have heard about this interpretation before, whether you know slash believe slash guess it to be widespread among independent Scientologists, and whether you find it likely to be whispered about within Scientology itself. The interpretation is this. The religious conspiracy Hubbard was fighting against is very real, and the original OT8 is the true OT8. The revised OT8 is simply a cover-up, signifying that David Miscavige is a suppressive person and that the Church of Scientology has fallen so badly that it is now a part of the religious conspiracy which Hubbard was fighting against. Thus, it is the duty of every true Scientologist and follower of Hubbard to fight against the Church of Scientology. I'm asking because the revision of OT8 seems like the perfect platform for a theological schism, just like the ones that in the past tore the Christian churches apart. All right. Thank you for this. And you're absolutely right. This is the kind of thing that creates schisms and denominations and sects and all of that were created over exactly this kind of ideological or or faith-based, you know, disagreements. And on, and on this take of OT8, yeah, there are definitely people who believe that the original bulletin and the original version of the, of the level is what Hubbard intended. Now, what everybody is missing there uh, in terms of everybody being these, these, you know, these independent Scientologists is that Hubbard never put OT8 together in the first place. It was all done after the fact of his death and that there was no, you know, OT8. There was a bulletin. I mean, this bulletin that Hubbard wrote in 19, it's dated 1980. um, it, It doesn't give you the procedure or rundown for OT8. It, it's a bulletin about Hubbard and his beliefs and his, his future goals. Excuse me, and um, and it's about that kind of stuff, right? It's kind of a it's a ice water dip. It's a reality adjustment. It's a hey, you know, you've been seeing black this whole time. Well, guess what? It's actually been white. Ah, you know, Lucifer's the good guy, and that's me. And I've been out here, you know, saving the world and bringing. I'm the light bringer, and and the Markabian forces of are conspiring with the invader forces to you know keep everybody. All the sentient uh, thetans in this universe uh, keep them enslaved in bodies and keep them stuck here. And and I've uncovered this truth, and I am the I'm the person who's going to you know lead the revolt of the thetans against the the fight the powers that be, and and then let's let's turn this universe around, right? Because we're all being suppressed into this condition. This is Hubbard's whole story, and uh, and, and and how Hubbard presents himself. And so you know these these diehard uh, independent Scientologists, who you know there's probably about ten of them. You know, I mean, we're not talking about a large group of people here. Uh, believe that Hubbard was actually the savior and that his work was corrupted and tainted and taken over. And you have different interpretations of this conspiracy idea. Uh, there are other variations of this. There was the idea that Hubbard was replaced by a body double in 1974, that everything that the church produced after 1978 is a corruption of the tech. I mean, there are different points on the on the timeline where they point to and go, it was all good until this moment or until this time period, and this is when it all went to shit. And, you know, what can I say? I mean, there's just levels of denial on top of denial on top of denial there. Scientology has never been anything but shit. But, you know, when people believe something and they have to believe it, then they can do that. Remember, and this is the this is the thing that I always wanted to um, to to 
highlight when this kind of stuff comes up is 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 we make ourselves stupid in order to hold on to a belief your 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 brain your mind your your rational thinking whatever it's your your brain didn't evolve to do rational thinking your brain evolved to to tell you stories about reality to interpret your vision of reality in a way that makes sense to you so that you can survive and navigate the world and and keep going that's what it's all about it's not about objective truth or rational thought or things being true it's about things making sense and those are two different ideas and so you can glom onto because this is why i can I, I i harp on this because this is how conspiracy theorists and you know this is where they live is it's all about motivated reasoning it's like i've got to believe this outcome this conclusion this thing is true I must believe L. Ron Hubbard. I must believe that what he said was true because otherwise my experiences are invalidated or somehow it all falls apart or my worldview collapses. And people don't want that. Who wants their worldview collapsing? You know, who wants their their tried and true beliefs to be, you know, uh, actually thrown in the mud? Nobody wants that. People resist that. They fight that. And so that's where these, you know, conspiracy ideas come from is this desperate attempt to make it make sense so that Scientology can still be true. It has to stay true. And in order for it to be true, reality be damned, you know, and that's how this crap works. So, um, you know, do I think that this conspiracy has uh, gotten into Scientology itself? No. Amongst Scientologists, they can't be talking about this stuff this way. Amongst OT8s, maybe, but you know, how many OT8s are there? Again, we're talking about a small number of people. Um, but it is pretty widespread amongst the independent Scientology field. This kind of conspiracy theory I see, you know, all all throughout there, and it's one of the reasons why I reject the whole independent Scientology movement so blatantly is because it's just so irrational. There's just nothing really rational going on there. And, uh, you know, I, that's my take on it. So uh, there you go. Holly, how will Scientology survive since the Sea Org has a policy against having children because the work of a Sea Org member is too important to also be burdened with the demands of childcare? Is this a weak link in the church's ultimate downfall since their most devoted members are not encouraged to reproduce? Thanks for this, Holly. And no, not really. If you, I mean, logically speaking, if, it, you know, people bring this up all the time is, oh, well, if they're not having kids, then how are they going to be more Scientologists? But remember, that's just the Sea Org. Staff and the public Scientologists outnumber the Sea Org by far, and they can still have kids and are encouraged to do so. And that that's, you know, they have families and all that. So it, the Sea Org is more thought of in the Scientology world uh, the same way you might think about monks or monasteries. Like you have rules. They're celibate, right? They're not going to have kids. Like the Catholic clergy don't marry or at least some denominations of that. They don't marry. They don't have kids. They, they, it's verboten. They can't even have sex. So if that's the case, then how is the, how are there going to be more Catholics? Well, obviously – all the believing Catholics are going to have lots of kids, and from those kids will be drawn the clergy to keep the core of the movement going while, you know, the members reproduce. And, and this has actually kind of been how Scientology has kept going through second, third, fourth gen 
Scientologists, because that's how long Scientology has been around now is there are fourth generation Scientologists. So uh, so this is not really, you know, a, a legit logical sort of thing that because the Sea Org can't have kids, Scientology's doomed because they're not going to be reproducing. Um, that's that's not really how that how that works. So just mathematically, just thought I'd point that out. So but thanks for the question, Holly, because I get asked this all the time. All right. And that is our show for this week. Kind of answers a little bit all over the place this week, but I hope that they were entertaining, informative, and somewhat educational anyway. And uh, thank you very much for your viewership, guys. I will see you next week. Bye-bye.